The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. to Dead Men Do Tell Tales, a podcast about forensic pathology-related topics. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we are both pathology residents interested in <laughs> forensic pathology. And today we want to talk about head injuries slash head bleeds. Um, a lot of varying injuries can lead to these, and it's kind of one of the big things that you see in a lot of TV shows and whatnot is, oh, they had this big brain bleed. So we thought it'd be a good thing to talk about what's real and what's not real and realistic head injuries. Plus, Jordan is on a autopsy-focused neuropathology elective, so we're helping her study. So many brain bleeds. (laughs) As always, my kitten Cole is currently stalking me, so you may hear a thunk, a thump, or a meow or something, so fair warning, kitten. And she no longer has a cone head, so mm. she is able to be more active. So if you hear a thump, she probably jumped on top of the box that our <laughs> microphone is in. Yeah. She's already done multiple times. And also, we are um, enjoying some Shavas Regal Extra, which is one of their blended scotch whiskeys. It was extra before extra was a thing. <laughs> While talking about alcohol, we will not be driving or giving ourselves head injuries from drinking alcohol. So we will be safe, no call. All that other good stuff. Yeah. Um, We wanted to start with the anatomy around the head. So we're going to only talk about injuries. So last time we did the neck. Now we're going north of the neck. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So starting from the outside in, obviously on the outside you have your skin. Underneath the skin you have the subcutaneous layer, so that's fat and connective tissue. Underneath that you have the galea, which is another specific connective tissue layer. I have a friend whose last name is that, but it's pronounced Gallia. So it (laughs) confuses me every time. So if I say it wrong, that's why. Underneath the galea, there's a layer of more connected tissue called the loose areolar tissue. Below that, you have bone. You have the skull. Underneath that, you have the mater. And so you've probably heard of dura mater. That's the most outer layer of the mater. So from outside it, it's dura, arachnoid, and pia. And they're all maters. And then under that, you have the brain itself. So we wanted to start off by talking about different types of injuries that can occur in those areas and definitions for all of those different types of injuries, starting with contusions. And we'll start with the skin. So these are all going to be just on the skin. Right. So the different types of injuries you can see on the skin include contusions. And contusions are caused by disruption of blood vessels. Um, So it's escape of red blood cells into surrounding tissue. And in this case, it's blood collecting just below an intact epidermis. And importantly, it's intact in this case. So there's no actual tear in the surface of the skin. And the layman's term for contusion is bruise. So bruise equals contusion in forensic pathology lingo. People also might call it a hematoma. After that, you have what's called the laceration. And so a laceration is a tear in the skin due to blunt force. So it's not a cut due to a knife. It's you hit something really hard, and because of that, your skin actually breaks. The reason this is really important in the head is because when you have skin over bone, you're more likely to get a laceration. And in the head, most of it's your skull. So you have skin directly (laughs) on bone in most of it. So you are more likely with a blunt injury to get a laceration. Like if you think about your thigh, right? You're from your skin to get down to your bone. There's a lot of muscle and fat in between. So to get a laceration isn't very common. You'll probably get a contusion, but in your skull, you can get a laceration, which is a cut, which is why like somebody gets hit in the head and they have a a lot of blood streaming from their face. That's because there's bone right underneath there. Yeah. And there's a lot of blood because the scalp is a very vascular area. So even a minor head injury can look like something major because of all the blood that comes pouring out. 
And these can be associated with underlying skull fractures that we'll talk about in a little bit. And to distinguish these from incised wounds, and of course that's like a cut from a knife or something, there's two important distinguishing factors. Or at least I had two. Nicole might have more. Um, I had two. <laughs> great. Uh, the first of which is that they're not straight. So a cut from a knife is going to be a very linear thing usually, versus this is very not. It could be slightly curved. It could be really jagged. Either one of the two. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing you get are these things called tissue bridges, which are little bits of tissue that kind of look like they're holding it together. Like it's still a total laceration through, but there is something kind of looking like it's holding it together when you look into the wound. They're trying valiantly, but not succeeding. And then another type of injury that you can see on the skin is something called an abrasion. And those are known colloquially as scrapes, scratches, or grazes. So those are caused by an impact on the surface of the skin with disruption of the superficial layers of the skin. So they are found on the actual site of impact. And the size and shape of abrasions can vary greatly depending on the force of uh, an impact and the amount of skin surface involved. And you can sometimes tell the direction of uh, the impact based on the way the abrasion looks. And the other one I'm going to talk very quickly about is an incised wound. So that's like a cut. It's when the skin breaks, but not from blunt impact. That's when it's you know cut by a knife or you know caught on a nail that's sticking out and you have what, what you consider a cut. And of course, those are linear wounds and they don't have those tissue bridges are the easiest ways to think of those. So then going a layer deeper, well, I guess underneath the subcutis, uh, getting to the bone. So your skull, yeah, you can get fractures. So breakage of the bone and getting a skull fracture depends on a number of fractures. So the amount of hair that you have, more hair, more cushion, the thickness of your scalp, Again, more cushion. Uh, The configuration and thickness of your scalp, the elasticity of your bone, the area of the skull that gets impacted, the shape, weight, and consistency of the object that is impacting or being impacted by your head. So like if you get hit by a pillow, it's going to cause a lot less (laughs) damage than a baseball bat. (laughs) Um, Also, the velocity. Um, is going to impact whether or not you get a skull fracture. So it impact. Yeah. <laughs> a car going at 15 miles per hour is going to do less damage than a car going at 60 miles per hour. Just a bit. Yeah. Um, and then any underlying medical conditions you might have. So if you have some sort of deficiency that causes your bones to be less durable. So all of those things can impact whether or not somebody gets a skull fracture when they have some sort of injury. Um, And there are lots of different types of skull fractures. So one of the kind is a uh, linear. So that's just a single line of fracture in the bone. And I read that that was more common on like hard pavement. So you like hit the ground, you can get a linear, well, linear fracture is common in that case. Mm. Another type of fracture is called the depressed fracture. That's when you have a large force over a small area. So a hammer you can get what you would imagine as the head of the hammer, just that area gets depressed down into the skull. That's called a depressed fracture. You can also have different shaped fractures. You can get circular fractures or stellate fractures. And as it would sound, circular means, you know, it looks like a circle and stellate is star-shaped. So depending on what the object is, you can get those different patterns of fracture. In the sense of those like different shaped fractures, A specific one is called a pond fracture. This is when you have concentric round fractures, and then there's often radiating linear fractures that come out of that. So that's, it kind of looks like a spider web. And this is not uncommon with a forceful blow to the head. It's called a pond fracture. And then another type of circular fracture is a ring fracture, which is when you get a complete fracture around the foramen magnum, um, which is the hole at the base of your skull that the brainstem comes down through. And that typically occurs when you have a fall from a great height and you land either on your feet or the top of your head. In contrast to that, a hinge fracture separates your skull base, which is the area around the foramen magnum, around that hole and a little bit in the back. And it separates that into two separate pieces. So you can imagine like something opening like a hinge because that's it's broken on both sides and splits the skull at the bottom into two complete pieces. And then there's basilar fracture, which 
is a fracture at the base of the skull. I guess I considered hinge and ring fractures to be both types of types basilar. of basal or fractures. Yeah. The only thing I wanted to say about the types of basal or fractures are that on the external examination on autopsy, you can see certain findings. Yes. Um, I mean, you can also see these findings clinically in a person who is still alive. Yes. But you can get bilateral periorbital ecchymosis. So it's bruising of both eyes. Raccoon eyes <laughs> yes. is, the, is the colloquial term and the thing that I was taught as an EMT. Yeah. And you can also get something called battle sign, which is bruising behind the ear. If you see those in a live person, get them to the hospital ASAP. ASAP. Yeah. Other types of fractures include an orbital roof fracture. So that's your orbits or your eyes. So if you have a high, if you have a, so similar to the, the ring fractures, if you have a fall from a height, you can get the orbital roof can fracture, like the top of your eyes, essentially. That was my last one. Oh. Okay. Then there's also diastatic fractures. So those are fractures that are at um, where opposing bones meet. So when you're a baby, your skull is many pieces. And then as you get older, they fuse together and become one. You can get fractured at those diastases. And this tends to be in children and young adults, secondary to swelling or trauma. Then the last one I wanted to mention is a crush fracture. So this is what happens if you get run over by a large vehicle and it sounds exactly like it does. You get all kinds of fractures that just crush the skull. And you, at that point, you can't really parse them out particularly well. And then we get below the skull to the brain itself. There's a lot of different injuries and things that can happen in the brain. But in terms of traumatic injuries, the main two are contusions and lacerations. In the end, they're very similar to what happens on the skin. So a brain contusion is damage to the surface of the brain, and that's bleeding in that area in the surface of the brain. These are really important because when you think of, a lot of people have heard of coup and contra-coup injuries. Coup and contra-coup injuries are part of a brain contusion. So you get hit in the head, your brain gets hit, and you get a small injury on that side. And then your brain slams back into the other side of your skull, and on the other side, you then have a contra-coup injury, so it's an injury on the opposite side. Essentially, whenever your brain impacts an object or gets impacted by an object, you'll get essentially a small bruise on your brain. Um, and then the other brain-specific injury is a brain laceration. And so just like with the skin, it's due to blunt force, and then you get an actual tearing of the tissue in the brain. Um, these tend to be associated with overlying bone fractures, but it's not like the bone cut the brain. It's a break in the brain due to the blunt force. These are associated with extrusion of the brain, actually, coming out of, like, ears or nose. And these lacerations are associated with MVA. So these are associated with higher impact injuries. So if you fall over or you have a concussion, you might get a contusion, but you're probably not going to get a laceration from these. Higher impact laceration, less of an impact contusion. And then, as with any other part of your body, you can get a sharp force injury. So if somebody has a knife, an ice pick, a screwdriver, you can get an actual cut into the brain itself. And we'll talk about some more specific injuries that happen with gunshot wounds, like injuries to the surrounding brain. But importantly, on these sharp force injuries, pretty much the only brain damage you're going to get is in the tract of that injury. So... Along where, the, along where the screwdriver went into your brain and maybe some surrounding blood that's gotten out, but you're not going to get damage due to a high-velocity thing when uh, you have a screwdriver in the brain. And then, of course, you can get gunshot wounds to the head. There's a lot on this, a lot of very in-detail things, and I think we'll have a separate episode on gunshot wounds. But just like you can anywhere else in the body, you can use the skin and other surrounding markers to figure out how far away the gun was fired. More specifically to the brain, given that there's the skull, which isn't present anywhere else, you get what's called beveling of the skull. Wherever the bullet went in, the outside of the skull is going to have a smaller hole than the inside of the skull. So it kind of, if you think about it exploding out, it explodes out into the skull. And so your entrance wound is going to show smaller on the outside, bigger on the inside, which is really important. 
And now the next time you are standing outside of a window with bullet holes in it, you can tell from which direction the gun was fired. So have fun with that when you're walking around the city. <laughs> Same concept. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell the direction that the bullets were going in because of this. Given that we said that the skin sits right on top of the bone, obviously. Because that bone is close to that skin, the gas dissipates within the underlying tissue, the fat and stuff called the subcutaneous tissue, and that kind of almost blows up a little bit. So you get larger skin splits on the head than you do elsewhere because it's so close to where that bone is. That kind of The bone kind of buffers and stops some of that gas, so then it kind of comes back out and splits the skin more. Takes the path of least resistance. Exactly, which is backwards. Yeah. So because these bullets are a very high-velocity projectile, as they cause increased pressure within the skin, they also cause increased pressure within the brain itself. So you get increased pressure, which can cause hemorrhages, particularly periorbital hemorrhages, which as Nicole talked about, can cause those raccoon eyes. So if somebody's shot in the head, you can sometimes get raccoon eyes, actually. And there's a lot more in-depth on gunshot wounds that we'll get into in later episodes, but that's just kind of a little things that are specific to the head. Are You can see the direction on the skull, and then the pressure in the skin and the pressure in the brain causes other injuries, including bleeding. Lacerations. Lacerations. And oh, and the other interesting thing is bone fragments from that bullet that come in can also cause more injuries within the brain because they fragment out. And then we have lower velocity projectiles. So that's like a bolt from a crossbow. Now those are still going quite fast, but they're definitely not going as fast as a gun. So those will cause injuries along the tract, but they don't cause some of the pressure changes. So you might not get raccoon eyes unless you actively pierce those vessels. And you won't get a lot of the pressure changes that you'll get from a gunshot wound to the head with that kind of thing. And same with stab wounds. So if you have a screwdriver or an ice pick, you'll get injury along the tract. And of course, if, it, if you catch a vessel, you'll get bleeding, but you're not going to get those big pressure changes that you get with a gunshot wound. So we talked about the different types of injuries you could see at different levels from either blunt force or penetrating force. And now we wanted to go into the different types of hemorrhages that you can see around the brain, starting from the outside in again with something called an epidural hemorrhage. I saw on this one, interesting, I had never seen this before, extradural, which made it easier because epi means outside, sub means under. But for some reason when I was in med school, it's still like I couldn't always remember which one was on top and which one was under, which is weird. It should be easy to remember. But extradural, epi, extra, outside, it was a a good way to think of it. I was like, I like that. So extradural is another way to think of it. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, If only I were back in med school having to remember that. (laughs) But I guess when I'm nervous on the stand, I can be like, "Ah, extra, extra Daryl. Please say extra. Yeah. Like that. Oh my God. And she was never asked to testify in court again. (laughs) As Jordan said, the dura is kind of that outermost mater. So this connective tissue layer on the brain. And it's very thick and very tough. It's not going to go anywhere unless you force it to. Yeah. Dura mater is tough mother. So. The best. Yeah. So this layer is actually firmly adherent to the skull normally, but there is this potential space between the dura and the skull that uh, blood can get into with different types of injury. They're usually associated with some sort of trauma. So you see skull fracture 90 to 95% of the time. The fracture causes laceration of the meningeal vessels, most commonly something called the middle meningeal artery, which is located on the side of your head in the temporal area. Epidural hematomas are usually caused by uh, arterial bleeding because arteries have a lot more pressure than veins so that they're strong enough to strip the dura from the skull because it wants to stay firmly adherent. Mm -hmm. You can tell that it's an epidural hematoma based on the location. So We'll get into this a little bit later with the autopsy procedure, but essentially when we do the examination, we can see where the blood is collecting. So we can see that it's on top of the dura and underneath the skull um, versus the location of some of the other hemorrhages we'll talk about. And then on imaging, epidural hematomas are usually disc-shaped. Or lens-shaped. Or lens-shaped. Yeah. And they're usually unilateral. 
The thing people most commonly associate epidural, epidural hemorrhage with is something called a lucid interval. So if somebody gets injured, they take some sort of trauma to the head, and then they seem like they're completely fine, but then like four to eight hours after they've had this injury to the head, they start acting a little bit loopy. And that is really typical of epidural hemorrhages. And it's actually like in a fifth of the cases, which is a much larger portion than I realized. Oh, that's a lot less than I would have realized. said 21% of cases. Huh. Yeah. A famous celebrity death that occurred Mm -hmm. via epidural hemorrhage was Natasha Richardson. She played the mom in The Parent Trap, which was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. She got in a ski accident and ended up having one of these, but she didn't get treatment as fast as she might have because of this lucid interval. People thought that she wasn't actually that hurt. And then by the time she got to the hospital, it was a little too late. And this is also the type of hemorrhage that's often seen in those dramatic medical TV shows where they're like in the field and somebody had an injury and then somebody needs to take a drill and go through the skull to release the pressure. Burr holes. Yeah, burr holes. So lots of pop culture epidural hematomas. And this is really, really common in traffic accidents. A little over half of these are caused by traffic accidents. About a third of them are caused by falls, and about a tenth of them are caused by blows to the head. So these are, in the vast, vast majority of cases, due to trauma. Mm. Um, The next one that we have, next layer down, is now a subdural hemorrhage. So now, instead of sitting on top of the dura mater, we're going underneath the dura mater, but it's still on top of the arachnoid mater. This is... Also, usually due to impact injury, about half the time you can see an associated fracture with these. The big kind of point that you learn in medical school about these is that they're pretty common in elderly people who've had brain atrophy, and then they fall. Now, because their brains are a little bit smaller, and the skull's the same size, so it's not like their skull shrinks with the brain shrinking. (laughs) So you get more fluid in there. You get more... Uh, it's called CSF, cerebral spinal fluid. And you kind of have the brain floating in this fluid. Now, when you have a sharp fall, like an impact to the head, you have some very delicate veins that are in there. And then when you fall, you can break those br- veins. They're called bridging veins. And especially in elderly people who are taking anticoagulation for their atrial fibrillation or whatever, mm-hmm. they break one of these vessels, they start to bleed, and then they can die from these. These do not have a lucid interval. Again, they're usually due to impact and trauma. Rarely are you going to get, realistically, any kind of brain bleed, a dural or a epidural or subdural without some kind of a trauma. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about what you can see under the microscope later. But there are some really good ways to tell how old these are based on some membranes that form around them. So the way that the body heals and tries to make it better if they survive these there's actually some really, really good timing. So you can see how old some of these bleeds are. Thematically appropriate, these are also associated with alcoholism because chronic alcohol use can also cause brain atrophy and you're also at more risk of fall. So cheers. Cheers, yeah. (laughs) And on imaging, these are typically crescent-shaped. So versus the lens shape of the epidural. Next layer down is the subarachnoid hemorrhage. So we had the dura and then you have the arachnoid. So a subarachnoid hemorrhage is taking place underneath the arachnoid before the the pia. And the pia is this very thin connective tissue layer that it's firmly adherent to the brain. And the arachnoid space is where your cerebrospinal fluid sits, um, helping to cushion your brain. So Within this arachnoid space, you can get hemorrhage. It can be due to trauma, but Mm -hmm. the most common pathology that I associate these with is an aneurysm. So an aneurysm is dilatation of a blood vessel. Oh, is increase in size of a blood vessel, which causes it to weaken. It's like ballooning. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's what it is. So an aneurysm... No, I liked it. I liked the way you got to it. Leave that in. Oh, okay. It was cute. Oh. So it's ballooning. <laughs> yes, it's ballooning. And this is usually, this can either be due to like high blood pressure over time. It can be due to a genetic defect in the way that your blood vessels are built. Yep. So again, collagen is a 
very important thing yes. in how we build all of our <laughs> connective tissue. And one of the issues you can have is making strong blood vessels. Yep. So you get this ballooning and in this area of ballooning, the vessel wall is weaker, it's thinner. And so you can get rupture of it. Um, and that could be due to any change in your blood pressure, or it could be due to trauma from the outside if you have one of these. These often happen where blood vessels meet. So in the brain, there's a lot of right angles where you have this thing called the circle of wills, which is where a bunch of different arteries meet up and kind of join each other and help perfuse everything. And a lot of them meet at right angles. And because that's not as strong as a structure as like the straight lines, you get a lot of these little aneurysms off that. They're called berry aneurysms. And those can rupture and cause these subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's also associated with drug use. So we said increased blood pressure. Mm. Drugs can cause increased blood pressure and cause this. So they're also heavily associated with drug use. Hashtag okay. <laughs> All of the drugs. <laughs> um, the other interesting thing about this one that I found was the location is really important. So if you get... So when you see a brain with subarachnoid hemorrhage, you see the blood collecting under, like, it looks like it's very adherent to the brain at first, and you can see it in different areas. So if it's around the base of the brain, which is where you have that circle of Willis that I was talking about, if it's around there, it's probably caused by a berry aneurysm. But if you have it over the convexity, so over kind of the outside and the top of the hemispheres, that's more associated with a trauma. So the location of the subarachnoid hemorrhage is also really important for finding out the cause and the mechanism of the subarachnoid hemorrhage. And then in terms of changes that you can see, these are initially very dark red. And over time, like you can get a little, you to say little subarachnoid, you can get a little subarachnoid that'll heal and your brain will start to absorb some of that. And then it'll kind of turn into this like golden brown color. So also based on the color, you can tell how old this might be. And then the last type of hemorrhage you can have is intraventricular hemorrhage. So within the brain, there are these big areas that hold more CSF, more fluid. You can get bleeding into those spaces as well, and they can cause other. They can cause a lot of um, pathology. So if intraventricular hemorrhage, you get blood built up in this space, and as you can with any of these bleeds your skull is only so big, right? So you get blood build up in these areas and then your brain doesn't have anywhere to go. So you get these things called herniations. So that's when any tissue goes from a compartment that it's supposed to be in to a compartment that it's not supposed to be in. So a common thing that a lot of people have is like an inguinal hernia. That's what most people commonly think associate this with but you can get this in the brain so your brain is leaving or attempting to leave the skull because of increased pressure which is a big no-no yeah and there's three big ones that we see two of them kind of go down through that foramen magnum like they try to push down and then the other one that we see goes sideways so like you have two hemispheres the right and the left and the brain can herniate from one side into the other side and that is like what nicole was talking about with an epidural hematoma you get pressure on one side of the brain and it's pushing in and it'll push that brain underneath this thing called the fox which is a hard connective tissue layer that separates the two hemispheres and it pushes the brain under onto the other side so from pushing down you can get tonsillar herniation which is from your cerebellum or you can get uncle herniation which is your temporal so your side lobes <laughs> yeah so Bleeding in the brain is awful, and one of the common ways that it's really, really bad is that it causes increased pressure, and then your brain gets pushed in areas that it's not supposed to go. Yep. <laughs> That's going to be a fun pop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the pop filter cannot stop me. So next kind of injury you can have is axonal shearing. So these are common in, we'll talk about these more in detail later, but acceleration or deceleration injuries when you have a quick stop or go and your brain kind of doesn't catch up, the axons, which are the long processes that go from your neurons in the cell body where they send the signal going out until where they give the signal, you have these long processes called axons. And when something stops really fast, these axons can shear and you get a sharp cut and these cause a lot of injuries and it's a specific type of brain injury that you see. And then the last type of brain-specific injury 
that we're going to talk about is called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So if any of you have seen the movie Concussion with Will Smith, Dr. Benu Malu was one of the team that worked on identifying this long-term buildup of injuries to the brain. So you get many concussions over time. It can be a small concussion where you kind of feel dazed, a little out of it, and then you feel better the next day. If you get a lot of those over time, or if you get some large concussions thrown in there, you lost a day, you lost a couple hours, you're really nauseous, it takes you weeks to not get a headache. Any amount of these concussions, and they don't really know exactly how many it takes, every person is probably different, buildup of these small injuries over time cause these microscopic changes and can cause personality changes and overall things in your brain. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a buildup of small brain injuries, small brain contusions over time that give you this larger pathology. So now we're going to talk about some specific mechanisms of injury. So what way can somebody try to kill somebody or can somebody die and what signs do you get from those injuries? The first one I want to talk about is a blunt trauma. So that's somebody hits you in the head with something. Um, or you hit bit, something. Or you, or you hit something very hard. So that's baseball bat to the head, that type of thing. On the skin, again, we'll go from outside in. You'll get either a contusion or a laceration. So either blood under the skin in like a hematoma or a break in the skin. You can get the skull fracture below it. You can have a brain bleed, which is could be either epidural or subdural. And then you get a brain contusion. And in this case, the coup injury, so that first injury, the brain contusion on the side of the injury is going to be larger. The contra-coup, so kind of the opposite side of that injury, is going to actually be very small in the case of blunt trauma. So in blunt trauma, hit in the head with a baseball bat, the contusion is big. And the opposite of the contusion, the mini contusion, is small. And then I'm going to contrast blunt trauma to a fall. So a fall is you're on ice and you slip and you hit your head really hard on the ice. You can get the same scalp contusion or laceration. You can still get a skull fracture. You can still get a brain bleed. But the brain injury itself is going to be very different. So in a fall, you're actually going to have more of a brain injury opposite of where you actually hit. So because the brain is moving in that motion, you're going to have a very small brain injury at the site of impact, but you're going to have a bigger injury opposite that impact because the brain is kind of slamming into the other side of your skull. And that's not necessarily exactly opposite. There's some very specific areas within the brain that we see these contra-coup injuries. But it's interesting that in blunt trauma, it's at the site of impact. And in a fall, it's opposite the site of impact. And these are more falls from like a standing height thing. These aren't falls from 10 floors up. Yeah. That's a completely different series of injuries. So one thing I read in the Essential Forensic Neuropathology book was that back in the Renaissance, French pathologists actually noticed about the size changes in the coup versus contra-coup injuries in different types of injuries. So it's not a recent thing. This has been recognized since the Renaissance, oh, which is kind of cool. That also explains why they're coup French. And contra-coup. Yeah, instead of usually it's Latin stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. Huh. You will now remember that. Yes. Cue. Wee wee. That is the extent of my French. I apologize. Merci beaucoup. I am very sorry. <laughs> Parlez-vous. English. There. <laughs> That's the extent. Do you know English? Yeah. <laughs> gotta gotta ask the essential question to get the conversation started in the only language that I can semi speak well. Well, I just have a really bad accent, and they'll know that the answer to that for me is the only one. American. Yeah. And then you can also get injuries without having any actual impact. So somebody hits you or you fall, you're going to actually hit the thing with your head. But, <laughs> yes. but you can also get injuries just from acceleration or deceleration forces. So say you're in a motor vehicle accident and you hit the steering wheel. So your body is actually getting impacted, but it's not your head, but your head is going to 
be moving and it's going to decelerate slash accelerate during that car accident. Very quickly. Very quickly. So these sudden movements of the head are going to cause different types of injuries. And so usually you won't see any external signs because there's no actual impact. So you're not going to see those skin abrasions or contusions or lacerations. You're not going to see the skull fracture, but you can still see brain bleeding. So those forces can cause things like the subdural hematomas that we mentioned. You can see those with acceleration deceleration because you're getting tearing of those vessels by the changes in the force. So those veins tear and then you can get the bleeding. And acceleration deceleration is also causing those diffuse axonal injuries that Jordan talked about. So it can tear the microscopic axons. And in the same vein with that, you have the big vessels Nicole was talking about to cause like an epidural bleed. You can also get what's called an intraparenchymal. So the brain tissue itself is called parenchyma. That's just our pathology term. So there's another kind of bleed that we didn't talk about called an intraparenchymal hemorrhage. So it's bleeding within the brain tissue itself. And that's usually at what's called the gray-white junction. So there's gray matter and white matter in your brain. One of them holds the cell bodies and one of them holds those axons. Where the two meet, is actually where you get the shearing. So you'll get the bleeding and you'll get the nerves will get cut or sheared at that point. So you'll get the surrounding brain bleeds. <laughs> you'll also get these tinier intraparenchymal brain bleeds in, in an acceleration deceleration injury. And then of course, we talked about these already, but all of the sharp force, knives, guns, that type of thing. You get the obvious, a skin incised wound, you get a cut, you can get a, either a skull fracture or a skull puncture, and then you'll get the brain itself will get damaged along with any vessels that you're penetrating. So when we take out the brain, there's a lot of little steps in there that are pretty important to get a good picture of the brain. So. As with everything in autopsy, the first thing you always want to do and throughout this entire thing is document, 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 and take lots of pictures. They're the best. Also, before you actually go into cut anything, we take a lot of x-rays now. Sometimes places have CT scans and using those x-rays is actually really important, especially if a projectile that you need to try to find. So we often take one if not two views of an x-ray to see where things might be in the in the skull when you're doing that external exam which is our first step we talked about this already you really need to make sure you look under the hair and make sure you're getting all of the injuries because hair hides things very well yeah and unfortunately we have to shave the head a lot of yes. times to get an accurate picture of the scalp and often we won't shave the entire thing, like you'll look closely between them all, but you often have to shave, if you do have a particular wound, you do have to shave around it so you can get a good picture, because sometimes that can help you identify the knife. It can help you identify the caliber of the bullet, if it's an exit wound or an entrance wound. So we often don't shave the entire head, but you shave the relevant parts when you find an injury. Also, importantly, you have to really look at the ears, eyes, mouth, nose, Nicole was talking about some of these bleeding signs, the raccoon's eyes, the battle signs. These are important things to note. Look in the nose and ears because you can see brain sometimes extruding from them. I had a case of a guy who had been shot and the police on scene had noted that he had an entrance wound in one of his ears. But they didn't know where the exit wound was. And sometimes it's rare, but you can have a bullet go in and ricochet around a bunch and not come out. But what the police hadn't done, and I happened to look in the guy's other ear, the bullet had gone perfectly through <gasps> from one ear canal and out the other ear canal. What? So we actually have a picture of, and you see on TV where they use those sticks to show where the where yeah. the projectile goes. We were able to actually connect the two, and it went right through the guy's brainstem. So if you get your brainstem gets, it, you're dead. That's, yeah. that's it. Your brain stem controls um, things like breathing, respiration, <laughs> which you need to live. <laughs> so, as we talked about last time. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, that external is super, super important. So, we were able to go into taking out 
the brain, when we took out the brain, and of course there was an x-ray, so we knew there wasn't a projectile in there, but we knew, all right, well, there is no other exit or entrance on or anywhere near the head, so that was the likely path it took, and we could wow. more intelligently go about taking out the brain. And then the next step is to reflect the scalp. So after you've identified all those wounds, you kind of cut the scalp from ear to ear. You kind of actually go right over the top. You reflect the, the scalp back at that point. After you reflect the scalp, you can look at the bone underneath it. You can look at the skull and you can look at any injuries to the skull itself. So that could be a fracture. When you take off that skull cap, you often put a notch in it in some way, in some area, so you can line it back up after, which is something I didn't really think about, but like it's very round and you kind of want to be able to line it back up so when you put it back together for a funeral later, they can do it more nicely. Yes. After you remove that skull cap, that's when you start getting into all those brain bleeds. So that's when you start noting, do you have a brain bleed? Does it come off very easily? Does it stay really tight? Does it look older or newer or that kind of thing? Once you get the skull cap off, the brain is accessible and you can lightly reach kind of underneath the back of the brain and pull it up. And you reach in and then you cut the brainstem as far down as you can. So you want to pull out as much brainstem with the brain as you can because there's three structures in there that you really want to try to pull out um and then once you have the brain plus minus the spinal cord out you can a lot of people fix their brains which means they put them in formalin and they let them get more firm and it's a lot easier to cut the brains when they're more firm than it is when they're still softer so then you can either cut it fresh and that can be done with something where you already have another cause of death somewhere else or you don't think the brain is going to be the cause of death. But if you think it's going to contribute, then you'll generally fix the brain and do that part later so you can get better sections and you can look at the structures better. Yeah, when the brain is fresh, it's kind of just like a bag of jelly. When you start cutting into it, it somewhat turns to mush on you. Yes. And with certain things, it's worse. So if something's been decomposing, Ugh. it's almost impossible. It's yeah. just um, very mushy. And then adult brains, because... They've what's called myelination. The axons, they mature and they get wrapped around with this thing called myelin. So adult brains are firmer than younger brains. So really, really young, the brains are very, very soft. And then by the time you're a young adult, the brains are a lot more firm because they've matured and it's a lot easier to cut them at that point. So what you're saying is sub-adults... Have jelly throwback. brains. <laughs> Solid throwback. I Thank like you. it. Thank you. I like it. I do my best. <laughs> and then the last thing I wanted to briefly talk about was when you think about a pathologist, you think about this person sitting in their office looking under the microscope all the time. When you think about forensic pathology, you don't necessarily think about the microscope part. You more think of the autopsy, but we do still look at things under the microscope, <laughs> although that tends to not be as important at, as our gross findings. Ex in most cases. Yeah. But there are times that looking under the microscope is super helpful. So one of the ones Nicole talked about earlier was that diffuse axonal injuries, those acceleration, deceleration injuries. You can actually see, they kind of look like round blobs on the axons that are indicative of axonal shearing. And then the other really important thing that you can tell under the microscope is how old something is. So there are some things you can tell by looking at it grossly, but there's some things that will start to show changes under the microscope sooner than they will in real life. And there's something in, real life. <laughs> in, in gross life. Um, so if you have a brain contusion, so an injury to the brain that causes a little bit of a bleed in there, immediately you're not really going to see anything like less than four hours. If the person had their injury and they died immediately, you're not going to see any changes. These changes only happen when the heart is beating and the blood is going round and round. If the blood isn't going round and round, you're not going to see any of these. But if somebody survives past this brain injury and is alive for a little while longer, they had a lucid interval, you can start to see some of these changes. And I won't go into the specific details of them, but you see different white blood cells emerge at different times. And you get 
in particular at about you know 15 ish hours a particular white blood cell can come and start for lack of a better term eating some of the red blood cells that you see so this one cell type is eating another cell type and you can see this under the microscope and it's kind of starting to clean up the blood that's in there and then after a certain amount of time it starts to cause iron deposition which is from the hemoglobin in your blood and that's important for something like person has is found down somewhere you see they have a head injury you take a section of it and you're like well this has been probably about three days old so this person survived for about three days after having this head injury before they died. So this can be very important. So now we're going to talk about some cases, some examples of injuries involving the head. So mine is actually a case that I had when I was on my forensics rotation. It was an older woman who was found down at home. It had been over X amount of days since she had seen her doctor, so there was nobody to sign off on the death certificate. So the medical examiner's office got her body. And she was actually slated to be an external-only examination because upon review of her medical chart, she had a bunch of risk factors for sudden death. So she had heart disease. So she was probably going to be signed out as a sudden cardiac death. But since I was on my forensics rotation, one of the Emmys there wanted to do a little bit of teaching. And so she actually did a spinal tap, but of the cervical spine. So... I don't know if anybody out there has gotten a lumbar puncture, but essentially we take a sample of that cerebrospinal fluid by inserting a needle into the spine. And usually that's done in the lower back, but this forensic pathologist inserted a needle into the neck. Which is pretty common in forensic pathology when you're doing a spinal tap to look at stuff. There's no, you go in a lower back clinically because it's less painful. Oh, and you don't want to injure anything important. So she was saying that she had heard of cases where you could check for a brain bleed, essentially, by doing this cervical, so upper neck spinal tap. And so she did it, and then it actually came back with, like, bright red fluid. And she was like, oh, no, because at first she must have assumed that she hit one of the vessels in the neck on accident. Yeah. So she actually called one of the other forensic pathologists over and he repeated the procedure but got the same result. And so she was like, oh, guess I got to open up the head at least now. So she ended up opening the decedent's head and we found a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Mm. So this elderly woman who had a bunch of risk factors for cardiac disease. She was probably on anticoagulation. Oh, yeah. I I can't remember if she was for some sort of AFib. I know she had hypertension and like a history of coronary artery disease. Maybe she was on anticoagulation for something. But yeah, she had had sudden neurologic, not sudden cardiac death due to a rupture of this aneurysm. And it was one of those interesting cases where, you know, as the saying goes, the only autopsy that I regret is the one that I didn't do. So in this case, we would have signed her out as a sudden cardiac death, if not for having done that extra procedure. Craziness. Yes. Um, Mine is also a case we had at the Emmy. There was this 35-year-old guy who was in a motor vehicle accident after which his car caught on fire. Ooh. So he had tried to pull around a bus with its stop sign out, and he tried to burn around the bus and saw somebody coming the other way or on the the other side and hit them. And I still don't know how this happened. The car caught on fire. That's so, something that only happens in it's movies. It's something that <laughs> only happens in the movies and in this case. Um, so when we got the body, it was actually really, really badly burned because it was a car fire. And they couldn't even ID the guy because he didn't have fingerprints. He didn't have facial features. It was an out-of-state car. Ooh. They weren't sure who this guy was. And when you do an autopsy on a body that's been pretty badly burned, the outside is pretty crispy, but the inside is actually pretty preserved. Like if you think of a steak that you sear, the inside is still very rare and it's kind of, it's very disgusting, but it's true on bodies too. The inside was actually very well preserved. And once you got inside the body, you, we found a lot of, we found a lot of things. You always find a way to bring meat back into this show, (laughs) like with your cold cuts or whatever it was. I am a forward in rugby. My position is a subset of forward and I like food. Um, But 
when we went into the head, we actually found, I think also like one of his legs was fractured or dislocated or something like that. There was also lower body injuries. When we went into the skull, we actually found a ring fracture, which is that fracture that's a circle all the way around the hole that your brainstem goes through. And these fractures, if you remember from our lovely lecture (laughs) earlier today, cause is often from a fall from a height when you land vertically, either on your feet or on your head. So we were trying to think of like, why would this guy who is in a traffic accident, you think about like your head going forward and then burn. How did he get this ring fracture? And then we went back to, well, he also had these leg fractures and this lower leg injuries. So the running theory is he saw the other car slammed on the brake and kind of like got his body in line slamming on the brake. And then the impact transferred up his spine and caused that ring fracture from him trying to step on the brake too hard. So he, his was called a death from a high spinal cord laceration because the other thing associated with ring fractures are spinal cord lacerations really high up. Because if you can imagine if all of that injury is happening right around your brainstem, you're also going to impact your spinal cord and your brainstem in that area. So he probably so we had this ring fracture and a lot of bleeding in the brain that was probably caused by this impact that went right up his spine and caused this base of skull fracture that is crazy so mva on fire and then he managed to get a ring fracture man so it was this insane case well they say bad things come in three (laughs) it's true (laughs) (laughs) he lost in all three oh yeah (laughs) Speaking of fires, um, one of the things I wanted to mention earlier with epidural hematomas or epidural hemorrhages is that when a body is in a fire, mm. you can get yeah. what looks like an, what, what is an epidural hem- hematoma, but it is an artifact from the fire, not necessarily a pre-mortem injury. Yes. Yep. Crazy. Brains are, heads are crazy. And there's a lot in that that we didn't go into detail on. Yes. There's so much more. Yeah. But for the sake of time, we will not go into it. And that's what future episodes are for. Exactly. Yeah. If there's anything more on that that you want to hear about or anything you want to correct us on, feel free to email us at thedeadtelltales at gmail.com. And remember, if you like this episode, rate, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. It really helps us to get boosted up so other people can learn about us. Um, You can visit our website at deadmendotellpodcast.com, where we link to all of our sources. And you can find us on Twitter, at deadmendo. On Insta, at the Dead Tell Tales. And on Facebook, at the page Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. And then our opening music is Introducing the Pre-Roll by Lee Rosevere, who you can find on SoundCloud. So thank you guys for listening. As always, let us know if there's anything that you would like to hear or would like to correct. Yep. And... Thanks. Yeah. Two weeks. Bye. Bye, guys. (laughs)